Good morning again, Grace Chapel. You know, our relationship with God starts and ends with God, not with us. God has always made the first move when he establishes a relationship with his creation. Back in the Old Testament times, we, we got to watch as humans enter into a knowledge of God, into a relationship with God. And it's only because God initiated that relationship, because God revealed himself to them in some particular way, often in different ways, because God allowed them to be put into certain situations where they were pushed to cry out to him for help. And in the New Testament, as we've been going through the gospel of Jesus Christ, as recorded by John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, we learned that a relationship with God starts with God. It did in the Old Testament, it does in the New Testament, and it does today as we worship together. As the same John would later write in one of his shorter letters in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And last week, we, uh, we saw Jesus introduce himself. And, and he did it in grand fashion in the capital city of Jerusalem. And he did it with the cleaning out of the temple. It was in John chapter 2. Do you remember that? It's probably not the way um, most would have counseled him to present himself uh, to those in power, to those who were calling the shots in his day, to those, well, to those who thought they were calling the shots, incorrectly thought they were actually calling the shots. Jesus, throughout the whole gospel, throughout his whole life, only listened to one counselor, and that was God the Father. We can learn a lot from that. What John does next is to pick out for us three specific encounters out of the thousands of encounters that Jesus must have had throughout his earthly life. Encounters where Jesus each time reveals himself as the Son of God. Three encounters with three very different types of people. The first one we saw last week was Nicodemus in chapter 3. He's this elite representative of the Jewish religious establishment. And today, in chapter 4, it's going to be a Samaritan woman. And then at the end of the chapter, a royal official who worked for Herod Antipas' court, Roman, the Roman Empire's puppet king for that territory, and in each, John effect, effectively shows the presentation of the gospel message. He shows it to the Jews. He shows it to the people living next door, their neighbor. And he shows it to the rulers who are in high places. Nicodemus. Remember, he was a good religious man. He's the sort of man you would think uh, would be a really good addition to our church. A decent, moral, knows his Bible pretty well kind of guy. But what Jesus emphasized to Nicodemus was that this new life that God, that only God provides, is not dependent upon your family background, it's not dependent on your educational upbringing, or even your religious persuasion. But the new life that only God can provide is a gift from God. It's given to whoever will believe. You say, well, then what about, yeah, even to them. The next person that Jesus encountered is going to be in direct contrast to the Nicodemus we met last week. And it starts in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. He had the opportunity to do a study trip in Israel. And Jacob's well was one of the sites we visited. And they've put up a shrine there like they've done to most of the religious sites in Israel. And while there, I purchased this little clay handmade jar that they said had water drawn from Jacob's well in it. And it was corked and sealed. Went home back, back here to North America. And after a long time, I decided I'm just going to open that up and take a look at Jacob's water from his well. So I opened it. Thought it'd be really cool to see the water. It was completely empty. And that jar, which I had the idea had water in it, was to be as empty as the soul of the woman who we were about to meet. John goes on to write, it was about the sixth hour, which is about noontime. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. So let's take in this scene for just a moment. Nicodemus, obviously, had been a man who Jesus met and talked to. And here it is now a woman who Jesus meets and talks to. You know, in our Western society today, we can easily fail to see the immense significance of just that fact that she was a woman. We live in an age of increasing awareness regarding equality and respect for one another. and We've got a long way yet to go, but Jesus, he ministered in a culture in which women were constantly, constantly looked down upon. They couldn't give evidence in a court of law. Some Jews thought that it was a waste of time for a rabbi to even talk to a woman, even to talk to his own wife. Now, I'm sure behind closed doors, that didn't work out that well. But others believe that giving your daughters a knowledge of the Old Testament was as inappropriate as selling them into prostitution. They were pretty strict on this. And all the men daily in their prayers thank God that they hadn't been made a female. Nicodemus was also Jewish, whereas this woman, we read, was a Samaritan. And again, we have to work hard to try to understand something of the intense racial hatred that was between these two people groups. Even the traveling details given in verses 3 and 4 are there because John's Jewish readers would never have gone through Samaria to get up to Galilee in the north, even though that was the most direct route. They would have gone around the Jewish and Samaritan readers would have been in shock already when they got to this point. And that's why the Samaritan woman is surprised that Jesus even talks to her. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, 
Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and then come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The final contrast that John draws our attention to is that Nicodemus was a highly respected and religious leader. But this woman was a moral outcast in her day. And that's the very reason why she came to, to draw water from this well at noontime, midday. See, you ordinarily would not do that. Anybody in their right mind would not do that because the heat would have been stifling. The woman from the town would come early in the morning or in the cool of the evening. But to avoid humiliation, this poor woman came at midday. And you can imagine the sort of talk that was going around town about her vicious, ugly, painful gossip. But Jesus spoke to her and he offered her a born-again life the same life he had just presented to the religious, well-known Nicodemus. The only life that would thoroughly satisfy each of them. And at first, if you read the text, the woman didn't understand. She, she didn't get what Jesus was getting at. She thought he was talking about some kind of strange water that you could actually drink and take in, just like Nicodemus was not able to wrap his head around and track with Jesus on being born again. What? go through the whole physical birth again somehow that I'm a grown man? But Jesus was using the picture of water like he used the picture of birth to represent that eternal, satisfying, brand new life can only be provided by God the Father. Water was absolutely vital in Middle Eastern society. If you couldn't get access to water, an ongoing supply, your crops would fail. Your, your flocks would die of thirst, and you and your family would perish. Of course, the opposite was also true. If you had a, a plentiful supply of water, you would prosper. You, your flocks would multiply, your crops would grow, and your health and your wealth would increase. Having a supply of water that would never fail was the Middle Eastern idea of a money tree. And Jesus was telling her, that he was able to give her that kind of security, that kind of satisfaction, that kind of meaning that she so desperately craved. Her trouble had been just like Nicodemus, that she was looking for meaning, that she was looking for love in all the wrong places. She had attempted to dig her own well, trying everything she could think of to hit a living water supply, to quench her inner thirst. A well she dug that was totally incapable of producing that kind of water that she was really thirsty for. What kind of wells are you and I digging today? Have, have we hit water? Is it eternal water? Or do our self-dug wells dry up eventually and when they are running, providing a diminishing satisfaction? Where does your true security lie? Verse 19, 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's kind of humorous in response to Jesus exposing the plain fact that she was looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places, she changes the subject. <laughs> she starts to argue, relig argue religion with him. It's, it's the typical response. People deflect when they feel vulnerable, when they feel exposed. And she wants to discuss the relative merits of whether you should worship God on Mount Gerizim as the Samaritans practiced or in the city of Jerusalem as the Jews argued you should worship God there. But even though this was an important question for these two people groups, Jesus knew something was way more important than the religious, political, even racially motivated arguments that were going on in the day. Verse 21, he said to her, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. You want to talk real worship? Okay. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. See, the issue was not, was not whether God was limited to one particular space. The real issue was, who is God really like? And how does he want us to worship him? And Jesus implied it wasn't good enough for the Samaritans to make up their own ideas about God. They needed to find out who God actually was revealing about himself. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus points out one particular attribute to show that God can't be confined to a place. He can't be confined in the way we confine a statue or an idol or even a building. God can't be controlled or manipulated any more than you and I can go outside and stop the wind from blowing, or that we can start or stop it from snowing. He is spirit and he is quite other from us. He does not share our limitations. He does not share our frailties, but we tend to define him and limit him by our own limitations. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The information has arrived today. It's being personally delivered to you. You see, there was more that the woman had to know if she was to understand who God really is. Because in one sense, how can you and I have a relationship with a God, the God, who is spirit, who is so other than us, incomprehensible? How can my and your separating sins ever be dealt with in order to gain us acceptance and access to even know God. Jesus gave a couple of heavy-loaded clues in this passage. He said that something was going to happen very soon. Did you catch that? Something was going to happen that would make it possible for people to worship and enjoy God the way that God intended, 
not in the way that was limited to a particular mountain or city or building or ritual or even deeds, but something that could touch all individuals, whoever they were, wherever they lived. And what was this something? Well, whenever we find these expressions in John's gospel about the time is coming or the time has come or here two times in these verses, the hour is coming. It's always to do with the crucifixion of Jesus. We see it, we're gonna see it in John chapter eight, chapter 12, chapter 13 and chapter 17. Jesus is saying that if people truly want to worship and enjoy the, the living and true God, if people want to have eternal life, there is only one way. There's only one way they can come, and that is through him in the way that God would provide and open up through Jesus Christ on the cross. The only way to worship God is God's way. The only way to worship God is in God's truth. Truth about who he is. Truth about what he has done. And truth about what he is going to do. You can't make up your own God. Well, you can, but he won't be the true God. We can't pick and choose pieces of God from different religions, from different philosophies, from our own warped perceptions. We have to listen to God's own self-revelation, and that revelation only comes to us through the Bible and through his son, Jesus Christ. And the only way to worship that revelation from God is in spirit. It's not through outward, formal, mechanical, meaningless rituals and ceremonies, but it's got to be in a way that engages the very depths of our being. And then as the disciples come back, the woman bolts off to town. In verse 27, we read, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. The disciples discover to their great surprise that Jesus is speaking with a woman, with a Samaritan woman. And they have not seen how Jesus has dealt with her so far. They, they haven't heard the answers that he's given her. So now it's their turn to learn some vital lessons. And it's also our turn to learn a lesson. In verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? No, no doubt Jesus is both hungry and he's thirsty. <clears throat> and he said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, for there are yet four months, and then the, comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So Jesus used this current need for food that he really did have as an illustration to point his disciples towards the necessity of concentrating on what, what really matters, what matters most, what's the important thing. Just like he had done with the woman and her need for water, just like he had done with Nicodemus and his need for physical evidence, just like God does with you and me with the common needs we encounter every day in our lives. 
For Jesus, that was the most important thing to him. It was even above the need for life-sustaining food. It's to do what God had called him to do. That was his goal. That was his vision. It was literally his life-consuming passion. This was the lesson that the disciples had to learn. And let's be real. They probably started out following Jesus with an eye towards some kind of reward. That's human nature. Following the Messiah would bring them things, uh, power, probably maybe some financial reward. They certainly imagined the great honor that would follow their obedience in following the master. But here's their tired and hungry master ministering to an adulterous Samaritan woman and about to be swamped by the approaching villagers, all of them unclean people, to the Jews. And their master is reminding them what's most important. Jesus said that nothing is more important than doing what God wants you to do. And he didn't just say it, he lived it. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. Now Jesus draws on verses from the Old Testament as his eye is catching the people from Sychar streaming out to meet him. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Disciples, this woman who you are so prejudiced against is reaching a whole town right now because of me. We did all the work. So you better get ready because a crowd is coming and it's thirsty and I have the living water and you had nothing to do with them coming, coming but you get to harvest. Jesus used harvest language. Harvest language that would have had special significance to his disciples because of their Jewish upbringing. You see, that harvesting imagery for God's coming kingdom was associated with God's kingdom all through the prophecies, like in Amos 9. Let me read, starting in verse 13 from Amos 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. In verse 39, we read, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of that woman's testimony. Let that sink in. He told me all that I ever did. That was all she had to say. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, I love this, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Don't you long to hear that confession from people you know? This coming kingdom 
where people are going to be gathered from all the corners of our globe, was beginning to break through right here. Jews, now even Samaritans, were being saved and rescued. Next, it's going to be the royal official, and then soon it's going to be Gentiles like you and me. And the invitation of Jesus to his disciples was to just get involved. Get involved in the climax of God's purposes in world history. This is it, said Jesus. This is what was promised long ago. This is what God has been preparing all through the ages. The sowing of all that biblical revelation over thousands of years has now reached a climax, and it's ready to be harvested. It's ready to come home. Verse 38 said, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. You know, you and I, we don't know in whom God has been working. Oh, we see signs and we, we wonder, but I think sometimes it may be some of the most unlikely people we know. And we've been invited by the king to get involved in serving the king, to serve his good pleasure in nothing less than being a part of the greatest plan the universe has ever known. The rescue and then the forgiveness and the redemption of God's rebellious creation. It happened to Nicodemus. It happened to the Samaritan woman. It happened to me. I know it's happened to many of you. I wonder who will be next. Would you rise with me and let's praise his name together. Our God, Heavenly Father, your word is so clear. It rings so true every time. And we wait for your return, but in the meantime, Lord, we, we pray that you'd grant us the boldness and the love, the insight and the discernment to share this good news in not only what we say, but how we live and to whom we, we talk. That, Lord, we would uh, be able to hear these salvation words again and again over the next days, weeks, and months. That this family here at Grace Chapel that occupies this building would be known for much more than this building, but would be known to be your children, bearers of the good news. And Lord, we desperately, we long to be reapers as well as harvesters and sowers. So we thank you for all of this. Looking forward to how you're going to use this even this afternoon. Amen.